As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon with Scotland currently losing to Ukraine, which makes it a sad day for at least half of TSS, uh, but a happy day for most of the world, which is kind of how it seemed when Canada qualified for the World Cup. It seemed like everybody was pretty excited about that. Here to talk all things Canada men's national team is the Athletics' Josh Cloak. Josh, thank you so much for being here. It is great to speak with you. Well, thank you. I, it's always... Um I think sometimes when, when it comes to Canada and soccer, you know, we, we sometimes think that people forget we exist or we did up until a few years ago. And so for you to say people felt happy about us qualifying for the World Cup. Yeah, that, I guess that makes me pretty happy as well. It seemed that way. It seemed like if it had been another CONCACAF rival or Mexico had secured it like well in advance, I think there would have been more consternation, more frustration. But when it's Canada, I think there's a little bit of jealousy, but there was a lot of like, they deserve it. And it's great because you're totally right that I think for most of my life, if we're talking Canada and soccer, I feel like we're talking about the women's program, which mm-hmm. is obviously historically very, very successful, very, very strong. Uh, but the men's program has obviously been coming on leaps and bounds. And I'm assuming that that is a thing that you will be talking about in your book which is due out in October. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've put into that? Yeah, I, it was a, a lot of work. Um, but, y- y- you know, kind of what we're talking about, the men's national team in, in in Canada, especially abroad, but domestically too, has been, for my entire life, something between a disappointment and an afterthought, mm-hmm. right? Which is worse, I, I guess that's up to you. But um, the, the problem is just that, you know, there was so much interest um, in the game in in Canada, right? Because we're we're Canada is a multicultural, diverse population uh, with a strong immigrant and refugee representation. So that love of soccer, that interest of soccer, comes from abroad, but that didn't necessarily translate to the men's team and that kind of passionate following of the men's team. You know, probably because so many people had their allegiances elsewhere. Um, there wasn't enough, you know, advancements in coaching in the game. There wasn't enough, um, you know, people staying in the game. And so basically the, the book itself 
begins with Canada's lone journey to the, the World Cup in 1986. And it looks at the changes in the country and the changes in soccer itself that led to Canada getting back to the World Cup in 2002. Um, you know, it's full of exclusive interviews with, with former coaches, former players, executives, uh, people all around the game. And it's very much uh, influenced by Raf Honingstein's book, Das Reboot, you know, which looks at how the German national team kind of saved itself um, after some pretty dismal performances um, in 2000 and 2004 at the Euros. Um, so there's a lot of profiles of the key people that, you know, are vital to this this national team's turnaround. Um, again, going back to, to 1986 to now. Um, and the thing that, that I kind of discovered, I mean, it discovered a lot through the reporting, but what I kind of learned all along is that, man, people really, really wanted this team to succeed. But it just, it looked in the words of, of Jonathan Osorio, who kind of, uh, you know, spoiler alert, kind of closes out the book. For a long time, people literally thought qualifying for a World Cup was impossible. Um, and, and that's something Jonathan Osorio said just moments after they qualified was that this, this dream of his to qualify for the World Cup was impossible. Um, so the book itself just, um, examines the changes, the things that had to be done to turn that impossibility into a possibility. Um, and I, I hope there's a lot there for everybody because, you know, for so long in Canada, it was the question was, you know, why isn't the men's team good? Right, more children played soccer than any other team sport in Canada. Right, the the, the love of soccer was there, but it didn't translate. And I, I hope the book kind of answers why. Do you feel like there is parallel with the U.S. where there were those same there was that same confusion about how many kids, how many kids are playing at a youth level, but then there's a drop off around like 13, and we don't have as many going pro. College seems to be the route, and then eventually it changed over time. Is there Similarity there for Canada, especially when it comes to the geographic size of the country and the limitations that can present? Well, I mean, I will say if people, you know, ask me, like when I do these interviews for the book, people would say, like, what have you learned? Like, what is what's the kind of secret sauce? What's the thing that turned? Uh, and I guess the parallel, um, the thing that, that I had multiple people tell me and, and that a lot of the kind of numbers, I guess, back up as well is that MLS coming to Canada really, really changed things. It provided professional coaching in a way that, you know, for young players that wasn't there previously. It provided like academy opportunities for players that wasn't there previously. And and you look at kind of how much better, first of all, how many American players kind of came back to play in MLS and how much, you know, MLS players made up the bulk of, of some of those World Cup rosters early on after MLS began. And then you look at kind of some of the, if you look at the, the a lot of the core pieces um, in this 2002 World Cup squad, how many of those players either came from MLS academies, right? Alfonso Davies, Sam Atacube, Jonathan Osorio, how many players got their start in MLS, right? Kyle Lahren. Um, obviously not every player comes through MLS, but I do think that that was probably right when, when Toronto FC, you know, gets starts in 2007 and then Vancouver and, and Montreal come just a few years afterwards, right? That just allows, and I know it's it's just such an overused term, but that allows a player pathway that wasn't there before. And I think that's something that, that really hurt Canada for a long time. 
obviously the CSL existed for just a few years immediately after the, the 1986 World Cup, but you had so many young players that were talented enough to play the game. But after they finished high school, it was like, I, where do I go? Right. It was just a wasteland um, of, of mm-hmm. kind of players looking for opportunities. One of the, the, my favorite interviews with the book. And again, a spoiler alert was Pat Onstad, you know, Houston's general manager, who was obviously a goalkeeper for a long time for, for the men's national team. And he was telling me this story when he was playing in, in Rochester and, and he was at a bar and he was talking to his wife, who eventually became his wife. And, you know, for so long, he had told people um, he was a school teacher. Right. And, and then he, he works up the confidence one night to say, no, I'm a professional soccer player. And she says, no, but really, what do you do? Right. Because the idea of, uh, please, please buy the book. There's, there's, there's better stories. Uh, but you know, the, the, the point being that for so long, being a professional in Canada was impossible. Right. There was just nowhere to go. You had to go abroad. Um, and then you'd be relying on friends of friends and maybe agents you maybe met who maybe, maybe, maybe could, could help you out. Um, it was really difficult to kind of keep continuing, um, you know, playing the game that, that you had talent to play. Um, so getting MLS in Canada just kept players at home. It provided real opportunities and players could stay playing in their own cities instead of leaving their their friends and family to, to go chase a dream abroad, right? So, um, yeah, I, I suppose that's a long answer to your question about parallels, but that's one thing that I think really did stick out to me. I mean, I, I love it uh, for explaining the situation, but also because now I know that Pat Onstad's uh, painful secret is that he was a pro player and he didn't want to share that, but eventually he found the courage to do so. I'm assuming that's at least like half of the book is – Pat Onstead's uh, journey. I also think when you talk about the the pathways there, yep. uh, we talked about that previously on this show about how it seemed like Mexico had certain pathways to clubs in Europe, especially in the Netherlands, and how that kind of kept players moving. And I think what we landed on was the idea that like it can be a pathway, it can be a pipeline. For me, it's it's like a, a line of ants, which is maybe not flattering, but I think of like if you destroy that line of marching ants, they're kind of all over the place, it's all scattered, there's no central plan. But once you right. have one sort of leading the way, it establishes that line for everyone to follow. And then I guess they can all end up playing for Ajax and Belgian clubs, which is seems to have been the case for a decent amount of the Canada team. Um, but before that, when you do have that period that you mentioned of disappointment and yep. kind of soccer being an afterthought, there were players that could have played for Canada, as I understand it, like Owen Hargraves. I forget how much he could have played for the U.S. or for Canada, excuse me, if that was actually possible. But are there any players that you have like bitterness or slight resentment towards the way maybe some Americans still have towards uh, uh, Rossi for playing for Italy over the U.S.? Well, I don't, partly because, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I want Canada to do well because I believe in, you know, civic pride, which I think, you know, cities and places across Canada will get into this team. And, you know, I would like to see my, you know, three-year-old son be able to to cheer for, you know, Canada at a World Cup, maybe in a way that I, I didn't. Um, I have kind of other teams that I cheer for, probably because Canada wasn't maybe an option to cheer for. But no, in terms of like resentment, I, I think Owen Hargreaves is the one. Like, look, he, he he was courted by Canada, but it was never really an option. So the bitterness, I I, I think, is there, right? And and I, the, the reason, too, that I think it's kind of an issue 
is a lot of the kind of, I mean, he was born in Calgary. So like he, he was obviously, he, he could have played for Canada, but I think to a lot of kind of forward thinking progressive soccer people in Canada at the time, uh, including a lot of fans, once they kind of got over that, that bitterness and resentment of him choosing England, it's that the, the infrastructure to support players of his quality did not exist, right? He had to go elsewhere. He had to go, you know, to Germany on trial and he had to do so because of, you know, some people, people that I talked to for the book, um, who were in Canada creating private academies of their own, right? That's kind of how Owen Hargreaves gets noticed. He gets noticed by a German who had moved to Canada and had connections at Bayern and got him there, not because, you know, there was a club side that, you know, could have played abroad and he could have got scouted, right? It was all, it was just a patchwork. Um, so obviously there's, like I said, there's resentment at someone like Owen Hargreaves not playing for Canada, but I think it also kind of the spotlight on the problems only got brighter because Owen Hargreaves left. And it's like, well, what happens when the next Owen Hargreaves is here? And that's to me is what's really interesting is, you know, you could make a case that the next Owen Hargreaves was, was Alfonso Davies, right? A player of like truly exceptional world-class quality, um, and he is able to, you know, thrive at first because the Vancouver Whitecaps are there because there's a, a professional level of coaching. Now, you know, Alfonso Davies' success, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about him, but Alfonso Davies' success is due first and foremost to Alfonso, right? But the fact that there was a professional level of coaching and there was an academy in place and there was a way for him to go from being a teenager to getting, you know, regular professional minutes that didn't exist when Owen Hargreaves was here. Um, so yeah, that uh, mm-hmm. bitterness, yeah, that but, but not anymore. That's good. I'm glad that we're not still like hung up on Rossi and Owen Hargraves. It's better yeah. to root for the current teams, which will be going to the world cup. Yeah. With that in mind, when did you, I hope this question makes sense. When did you first start to think like, I think this team could maybe qualify for the world cup versus when did you actually let yourself believe that they could qualify for the world cup? So I, I want to take a moment here to extend uh, sincere thanks and gratitude to my editors at the at, at the Athletic because I wrote a story in 2018, I believe it was 2018, and the headline was "Here's how Canada can qualify for the 2022 World Cup." No, really, um, <laughs> because obviously, you know, look in 2020. It seemed like an. It seemed like uh, it, it wasn't going to happen. But I remember thinking, and, and I'm not saying that like I was onto it when other people weren't. That's not the case. I just remember thinking in 2018, wow, there's so much young talent here playing for clubs in Europe in a way that hasn't that that that, that didn't exist before, right? When Alfonso Davies goes to Bayern, Kyle Lahren's at Besiktas. Um, and you you realize, and then you had uh, Liam Miller, who was in in Liverpool's academy, and and not all these players kind of make it right, but Balu Tabla is at Barcelona B, and you're just kind of saying to yourself, right, yeah. wait wait a second, why are all these you know the the these aren't um, you know 18 year olds that are like trying to break through, you know at at MLS clubs, and that would be great, it, it really would. Um, but they're getting they're getting um, 
first of all, the eyes of, of Europe are clearly in Canada, but they're getting a level of professional training and the standards of what they're kind of being exposed to are being raised. And I just, I remember saying in writing, if all these pieces come together, the, the talent alone should get them there, right? There was game-breaking talent, right? Jonathan David goes to Belgium, right? And he he bypasses MLS completely, which was part of, which was like a, a plan of his. So once all that happened, I just remember saying like, and it's not just, you know, and, and Canada always had players in, you know, Scotland and kind of lower levels in England because that's the type of player that Canada produced, right? Was that kind of sturdy, defensively minded player, right? You think back to the 2000 Gold Cup winning team. Um, Canada was not a pretty team to watch, but they, they got the job done through like defensive play. And that's what, th- those were the players that Canada created for almost a generation. But I remember saying, there's all these attacking players in Europe. I wonder what could happen if all these pieces came together. But I really do think that like in 2021, um, that's when I, when it, for me, things really, really started to turn. But in 2018, I remember I, I wrote this, this article and I do, I am appreciative to my, you know, to my editors that they kind of let me go on that, that harebrained theory in, in 2018. And since qualification, have you seen the interest pick up? Are there more people following the team or asking questions? Is there more media presence when it comes to the national team in Canada? Yeah, yes to all those uh, questions. Um, it's interesting. I, I obviously do a lot of reporting um, on you know on hockey as well, and and I I will say that in the latter half of qualifying, I had all these hockey people, whether it was reporters or executives or players or whatever, who, and, you know, hockey is hockey in Canada. I I think all of, you know, we don't need to go any further than that, but hockey and soccer for, for a long time were kind of at loggerheads because they were just different. They're completely different sports. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, you know, soccer was kind of thought of, and I grew up in a hockey town, like the hockey town, Oshawa, Ontario. And soccer was thought of as inferior because it wasn't a game that was played with, you know, physicality and, you know, players dove and all those silly cliches. Um, and so they were two, you had these kind of two opposing mindsets, I think, culturally in, in Canada for a long time. But you had all these hockey people coming to me being like, what is happening? What do I need to know about this team? Because it's exciting. You could see people were excited about it. It wasn't like, what's this strange thing that I need to know about? It's like, this thing is making a lot of people happy. What's happening here? Um, and yeah, I would say like, just in terms of media attention, like I can think back to the, the first, you know, match day minus one training session ahead of that first game. And, you know, there was kind of the, what I like to call the old faithful, you know, probably eight soccer reporters who are there for every thing and like by the end, the press, like in that last game against Jamaica, the press box is full. You had every newspaper there. You had, you know, all these different outlets. And there there was a joy there, I think, afterwards that, that we just, we haven't, it's never been associated with this team, right? When they do qualify. But you were there before those people. So let's plug your book huh. one more time so you get the credit. Uh, what's the book? How can people pre-order? So it's called The Voyageurs, um, the Canadian men's national team's quest for the World Cup. It's out on Dundurn Press, um, which is an independent Canadian publisher, on October 4th. Pre-orders are live. You can 
head to my Twitter. Um, obviously, you can head to kind of some of those bigger um, book sellers, which shall remain nameless. Um, but you can also, again, just search The Voyagers. Um, it's out on Dundurn Press. Um, you know, if you can, find it in your local bookstore. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's lots of ways there. Lovely. All right. Well, we will be back to talk about the actual national team and the players that are on it right now. First, a quick word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We're talking all things Canada men's national team. Uh, Canada was set to play a friendly against Iran on June 5th. That has since been, uh, who is it, Panama who steps in? Is that right, Josh? Yeah, Panama on Sunday. Uh, but the Iran game, because Panama has stepped in, but not just because of that, uh, ultimately canceled. Can you explain the background regarding why that decision was ultimately made? Well, I mean, there's a few layers to it, right? Obviously, you know, Canada for a long time, um, obviously has only played teams in CONCACAF and done very well, but there was the need, a real pressing need throughout Canada soccer to challenge the team and get them to play a team outside of CONCACAF and get them to understand the level of quality that they're going to be facing in the World Cup. Because look, as, as kind of great and fun a story as this team is, you know, I think there's there's some people believe this team is going to go and they're going to play without any fear and they could really surprise people because they have game-breaking talent. And there's some people believe that they're going to hit the kind of opponents. I mean, their, their first game is against Belgium. They're going to hit the kind of opponents that could yes. see them, yeah, really be in a lot of trouble. So they have to test themselves. And so Iran is a very good team, you know, on the field. But politically, um, it, it, it's look, it's an issue. Right, a, a plane full of Canadians was shot down by the Iranian army, um, and and you know when this game is booked, and that that happened in 2020, and so when this friendly is booked, um, there were a lot of questions being asked, uh, including by families of survivors, uh, or sorry, families of of those who died by saying, why did this? Why was this? Why is this happening? Uh, you had the Canadian Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau saying, I believe he said, quote, it's not a very good idea, or this wasn't a very good idea. Um, and so when you get the the prime minister kind of questioning why a, a, a men's friendly was announced, there's going to be a lot more attention. I think there were a few outlets that, that did a lot of work to kind of question why this happened. Um, and so eventually, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the questions um, become too pressing and Canada soccer, you know, I, I believe they said the the issue was too divisive and they had to call the game off. The the frustrating thing is that there's still there's been a 
you know, a, a press release um, released by Canada Soccer. But no one, you know, that the president, Nick Bontis, no one has kind of addressed why this happened. No one has been made available to the media to discuss why this happened. And that's something that I think, you know, there's a few takeaways, but I, I think that's something that, you know, again, Canada being at the World Cup is a fun story, but it also speaks to the fact that Canada's at the World Cup for the first time in 36 years. And, you know, federations that have been doing this for a long time understand, well, maybe you don't book a friendly against Iran. Maybe you look five steps ahead to understand, you know, if this happens, how is this going to play in the media? How is this going to play in the public? Um, I think, you know, you could probably accuse, you know, Canada of probably booking this friendly without really, really considering all the options. Um, and the fallout, you know, for a few days was, you know, Canada's going to play Nations League games against Curaçao and, and Honduras, um, but they need something else. And so there was a bit of scrambling. Eventually, you know, they get Panama to come play. And, and I think that's kind of one of the takeaways for me is that, you know, while the United States is playing Morocco, they're getting a, a, a real bona fide test. I, I don't think we can call Panama a real test right now. So that's that's yeah. kind of a bummer, right? That's that's really interesting, though. Obviously, not great when it comes to the situation with Iran. Although it feels like maybe the the right decision made there. But the idea that being a debutante or like like can have significant impacts on your preparation, both in terms of your friendly opponents, but also. I think there were stories about how as soon as the U.S. secured qualification, they were booking their spot like where they wanted to be for uh, the pre-World Cup training camp. And then once they're in Qatar, where they're going to be and little things like that. If you're expecting to be there, if you've been there before, you probably know how to get those do things done or know that you need to get those things done faster. So it will be sort of a steep learning curve for Canada in certain ways, though, as we've already talked about, plenty of talent there that should help them kind of make up that gap a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's that's a real kind of that's a that's a genuine issue. Um, you know, th throughout Canada, I think there is an understanding that the, the the talent on the field, and we talked about this, has progressed so quickly that I think in a lot of ways the infrastructure is is kind of catching up or, or has to catch up, right? Because you have players, you have genuine world class players like Alfonso Davies, like Tejon Buchanan, like Jonathan David. And these are, you know, some of the players that got Canada to the World Cup. But the understanding of of what to do, a now that you're there, and b how to make sure that this is a this kind of success is sustainable. That's something that still needs to happen, right? That's and and, and I don't think that that you know I don't think there needs to be any finger pointing. I just think that people need to you know th throughout you know Canadian the Canadian soccer community just need to start kind of learning how this works, how, you know, you need to act and, and perform and, and again, learn on, on the biggest of stages because it gets very real very quickly, right? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. If, if you're lucky enough to go. Um, if you are new to this team, if we have some listeners who are less familiar with Canada or maybe haven't seen them in a bit, uh, what are the kind of prevailing formations and tactics under John Herdman? And then do you think that will be adjusted at all? Do you think we'll see some experimentation in the Nations League this summer? I uh, Experimentation, maybe. I think John Herdman, what he did very well 
throughout qualifying and, and maybe as far back as, um, you know, in, in 2019, that Nations League qualifier, October 2019 against the United States, when Canada beats the United States uh, 2-0, um, you know, their first win over the U.S. in 34 years. You talk to people, you talk to players, you talk to people in the team. That was a transformative moment for the team, partly because they they beat the United States, but partly because John Herdman deploys the team in this 4-2-2-2 box midfield, right? This kind of un- unorthodox setup that the team had never played. Um, and he challenged players to, to, you know, think outside the box, sorry, but he, he challenged them to think outside the box. He challenged Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David to really press off the ball in a way they hadn't before. And, you know, he had Jonathan, or sorry, he had Alfonso Davies saying, not afterwards, but kind of, you know, in qualifying, he he said, you know, before John Herdman, we got the team sheet and we went out and played, right? So you didn't really, there, there maybe wasn't that kind of tactical fluidity and tactical, you know, again, thinking outside the box, um, that, that didn't really exist, you know, on a continuous manner in, in, in the, the men's national team. And then as qualifying goes on, they obviously don't play in that box midfield, but they they can rotate between kind of a 3-4-3, three, three, a 3-5-2. Three, They'll play four in the back, but when they do play four in the back, there's the expectation that, that Sam Atakube on the left as a left back will really, really push forward. And in doing that, he can kind of push Alfonso Davies even higher up the pitch. You know, I think for a long time, um, when John Herdman took over in 2018, the men's national team suffered a little bit because Alfonso Davies was deployed as a left back. And I get that that's where he played at Bayern, right? But Bayern has the kind of attackers that Canada doesn't have, right? And eventually, I think Herdman learns to kind of trust Davies to just kind of let the barn door open and let him just just go and attack the game. So he's now in more of an, like an advanced left winger role. So... There, I, I think in some of their earlier matches, they liked playing three at the back because they wanted the likes of Sam Atacube, Richie Larea, and Tejon Buchanan to play in that outside midfield role and really, you know, use their speed because Canada's, it, they are, they're a fast team. They can get up and down really, really quickly and recover defensively. But I think more towards the end of qualifying, you know, they'd play in a 4-4-2 with a diamond. They'd, they'd, they'd play with four in the back and kind of a more traditional 4-3-3. The only thing tactically that I think really needs to be addressed, um, and, and it's something I've brought up a lot, um, you know, in the lead up to the World Cup is for all of their strengths, Canada doesn't have a true number 10 creative midfielder. And you can argue, as people have, that that – you maybe don't need that kind of player anymore. But I just think that's that's one they really don't have that kind of elite player to play that final pass. They're they're at their best when they're attacking from wide areas and and sending balls in. Um and, and it he'll use Herdman will use Jonathan Osorio, who I have all the time in the world for, in that 10 role sometimes, but they have great deeper midfielders you know, Stefan Estacchio and Atiba Hutchinson, but that true number 10 isn't there yet. So I would say that's kind of the only kind of, you know, for talking tactics, that's one of the, the tactical areas that I think is is probably circled with a red pen heading into the World Cup, right? 
So you mentioned Osorio could do that, has done that a little bit in the past. Is there one player you think could step up to that role or could be tried there and maybe find some success? Or if not, would you rather see them just change that approach a little bit, maybe not try to look for that number 10, but instead change the approach, get more midfielders who can all try to create? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go with the latter. I just, I mean, the World Cup is a few months away. I don't, it's, I don't know if like square pegs and round holes is the way they should be thinking right now because they have like in my opinion one of if not the best ball playing deep lying midfielders in CONCACAF which is Stefan Estacchio like I he first of all that's the kind of player that I love to watch is that deeper lying midfielder who can spray passes and Estacchio is is very much the engine of this team and I think he's going to be a player that will turn a ton of heads in the World Cup. You know, maybe at times is a bit of an eight, but maybe is more of a six who can really dictate the tempo of play, pull the strings from the back. Um, and again, that, that you, you can see that that's probably the way Canada's going to want to line up. If you're going to build from the back, you're going to get the ball to a stackio and, and you're then going to look for, you know, Larea or Buchanan or Atacube in wide areas you know, and, the, and then you're going to build your attack from there. Um, it, it, Canada will be susceptible if if they go up against a team that really understands how to press them and press them in the back um, effectively. But yeah, I think just in terms of the midfield, I think Stefan Estacchio is, is the key. And it really wouldn't surprise me if he's the player. Because like people are going to know Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David going into the World Cup. I wouldn't be surprised if... People both in Canada and abroad say, whoa, who, who is this? Because this is a player that can really impact a game. So you have Eustachio, but if you need that number 10, I'm going to do Canada a solid here. We're going to do a little trade. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Sebastian Legette, but we're going to give you this guy. You don't have to have heard of him. He's just this incredibly creative <laughs> playmaker. And in exchange, we'll just take Jonathan David. He's born in the U.S. anyway. So we'll take him. You get Legette. You get your number 10. We get our number nine. I think we've solved this. You know, I, we were talking about kind of players that <laughs> that that uh, are filled, you know, fill the, the soccer community with regret. The, the need to get Jonathan David in in a U.S. shirt, obviously, it's never going to happen. But that's something; it's something that we're not used to. Is is Americans saying we we want Jonathan David? We should have had Jonathan David. Like that's such a foreign feeling for for Canadians. <laughs> it really is because I get that a lot, right? Well, he was born in the U.S., you know. Like you get that a lot, yeah. and it's 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 really I think it takes a lot of people back because we're not used to to. To, to hearing that. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, that is always like an exciting thing. We had that in the U.S. whenever a dual national, like Serginho Dest, when he chose, chose to play for the U.S. over the Netherlands. And who knows if he would have even been regularly playing for them. But it's right. still that moment of, ooh, like we have a thing that somebody wants. This is exciting. So, yes, uh, I look at you uh, with a certain degree of envy when it comes to Jonathan David and a lot of envy when it comes to Alfonso Davies. Let's talk about some other players uh, for Canada because we've got the Nations League roster. You wrote a piece for The Athletic that I thought was excellent about basically selecting your uh, World Cup squad and looking at some players that were locks, some players that were maybe questionable or on the bubble, some players that maybe weren't in consideration. Uh, so look, let's look at the Nations League for a second. Let's start with goalkeeper. It feels like things are fairly set at that position with uh, Milan Borjan likely to be the starter. 
Yeah, I, I think the three goalkeepers that Canada brought to the Nations League are the three goalkeepers that they're going to bring to the World Cup. Milan Borjan is the guy, right? He's been playing in the national team since 2011. You know, if if Stefan Astacchio is the engine, he Borjan is the kind of emotional heartbeat of this team. He's an insanely likable, gregarious figure. He's kind of he's the one, you know, pulling pranks and making jokes in the locker room. Um, but he's also you know, a, a, an excellent veteran shot stopper, right? With with Red Star Belgrade, who's you know six time Serbian champion, um, he his confidence does a lot for the team, and it, it it kind of oozes out, you know, into the park because he can make those real game breaking highlight real saves, um, and I think that the rest of the team gets a lot of juice from that. Um, you know he he's getting on in his years, right? He's he's thirty four, um, so this is probably going to be his last kind of kick at the can in terms of the World Cup. Um, but it, I, I think they're in a good spot after, right? Maxime Cropo is mm-hmm. is having a great season at LAFC, and Dane St Clair is I you know the goalie of the future with Minnesota United, but um, Borean's the guy. Maybe his distribution isn't what you'd like it to be, but he can make a, a, a really big timely save. He's a big body and, you know, Herdman's he's, he's one of Herdman's guys. He's part of the leadership group. And and I don't see that kind of changing. I think it would take a real, an, an injury or, or something pretty grave to happen for him to, to not start all three group stage games in the world cup. You mentioned that he's good for at least one heart-stopping moment per game. Mm. Uh, you wrote that in your piece. Was that like a heart-stopping, like, wow, what an amazing save? Or was that more of a like, ooh, that was very close. That could have been a goal. Oh, both. Okay. Oh, you're, you're, getting, <laughs> right. you're, get, you're getting one of each per game. I <laughs> promise you that. I, maybe, you know, maybe that's, the, again, I talked about distribution. Maybe that's a pass, an errant pass out of the back. Um, you know, I, but again, the, there's also, like, you, you think about probably Canada's biggest game in World Cup qualifying was their win over Mexico at home, uh, the Azteca, right? Borjan makes an incredible save right at the line, diving to keep the ball out to, to prevent a draw, um, which could have changed things. Um, so he's he's good for both, but he's he's the kind of player that you just cannot stop watching. Uh, We're going to keep talking about Canada's potential World Cup roster in just a moment. First, one more break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
Welcome back. We've talked Canada goalkeepers. Let's talk fullbacks for a moment. There are not that many of them, Josh. Uh, I, I think you had three locks. That'd be Richie Larea, Alistair Johnson, and Sam Adekube. Uh Any concerns about the lack of depth there, or do you not foresee that being a problem? I don't see it. It's funny. My editor brought up the same thing. I don't see it being a problem because all those three players could start every game, right? You're not just, you're not bringing three fullbacks that you're like, eh, I, I, I don't know. Like to me, all three of those guys, I, I would imagine um, Atakube and, and Johnston start. Um, and I would imagine, like, I, I believe Alistair Johnston played the most minutes of any player, through qualifying. So you, you kind of know he's a rock. Sam Atakube really coming into form and, and Richie Larea, you hope he gets more minutes in the Premier League next season. Um, I just, I don't have any concerns kind of whatsoever about those players. So yes, there's only three, but I think you're getting three really solid options there. Would it be safe to say that you have more concerns about center back? I mean, center back... It's it's strange, you know, like I mentioned before, Canada years ago, like when I was growing up and you'd watch the men's national team, they just, they looked, perhaps it's where I kind of grew up, but they just looked like a bunch of hockey players out there because they were all these kind of big bodied, you know, defensively minded players and their center backs were usually their best players, which isn't a great trait if you want to win tournaments. Um, <laughs> I, I have, I have a, yes, I have concerns. Steven Vittoria looks to be, um, out with his, his, his Portuguese side. And, um, you know, Daniil Henry, I, I, I think again, great player, great person in the locker room, longtime player with the team. But, you know, I don't love what he's done at LAFC this year. Um, Scott Kennedy playing, you know, second division soccer in Germany. And, and I think Kamal Miller's had a great season in Montreal. But the, the depth isn't there, and, and I I just I worry that maybe you know just as a collective a little bit too slow. Um, I, I like Kamal Miller's um, ability to get the ball out, kind of out of trouble, and you know he has a unique ability to kind of dribble his way out of trouble at times. Um, and I, I like Daniil Henry if if they need some some physicality in the back, but. Um, it, <sighs> Let's let's just say it's not an area of strength for Canada in the way it probably used to be. Um, Derek Cornelius is not on the Nations League roster, has been on a lot of rosters, but hasn't played that many games. I think only 14 appearances for Canada so far. Uh, any idea why he isn't more of a key player for John Herdman? He's playing regularly uh, for his team in Greece, but it doesn't seem like he is uh, quite the favorite when it comes to Canada. I would I would imagine... Um, and this is, this is my guess, um, that, you know, Herdman probably just doesn't rate the Greek league in a way he does some of the, the other leagues, right? Um, that, that some of his other center backs are playing for. Um, and that's unfortunate if you're Derek Cornelius because he's playing regularly, right? And, and, and that's kind of what you want. You know, John Herdman, if, if we talk about, you know, changes to the program, he, is just adamant that his players play in and challenge themselves in top top leagues throughout Europe, right? And 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 North America as well. But he's adamant that these players, that his players should be really moving on and and because he believes that the exposure to those pressure-filled environments will harden a player. Um, so there's probably some concern there. 
Um, but I, I, I think that I have Derek Cornelius as, as a player that should be, you know, in, I have him as confident on my list. I have him kind of rated a highest or higher than Daniil Henry. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens over the next few months, I guess. So Herdman may not uh, rate the Greek League. He has one player from the Greek League, but that's in the recent call-ups category. But in the active team, there's three players from Turkey. So basically, John Herdman uh, should spend time in Istanbul and not Athens if he wants to avoid geopolitical issues. Uh, that's That seems like a safe one for him. For you, Josh, if you were picking this team, if Canada uh, if were fast-forwarding to that game against Belgium, who would you be most comfortable starting in the back uh, with that World Cup opener? Yeah, I, I've I've been saying this for months now, and I mean, first of all, can I just say that it's it's incredible that you know in Canada and and abroad we're debating who should start for Canada in a in a World Cup match, and and we're we're having arguments about this, right? I think a few years ago people just <laughs> oh, said, "Yeah, who cares? Just just make sure they're there." But um, for me, that the starting three against uh, Belgium would be Atiba Hutchinson. Uh, Stefan Estacchio and Jonathan Osorio. I just think you have to start Atiba Hutchinson, 39 years old. You know, Mr. Canada has has been through some excruciating moments with the men's national team and all but walked away from the men's national team. John Herdman did a lot to, to bring him back. Um, you have to play him, and I think he's still a player of immense quality. Stefan Estacchio, for me, should play every single minute of, of every one of Canada's games. And again, Jonathan Osorio is a player that seems to raise the level of his game, the bigger the moment. We saw that with Toronto FC, you know, when they went on their, their CONCACAF Champions League run and he scored against Mexico in Mexico, right? So he's a player that doesn't get phased by the big moments and he's not that pure attacking number 10, but he's a veteran player who again, just has a good head on him and I, I think um, deserves a lot of credit for Canada. Since we're talking midfield, would you like to see more of uh, Ismael Kone or are there things that you think he needs to do, specific things he needs to do to strengthen his game between now and when the roster gets finalized? Well, I mean, I, he just needs a lot more reps professionally, right? Which this is no fault of his own. He's 19. He's playing in his debut MLS season, right? So he just needs those reps. I, I think defensively, there was a few kind of moments during World Cup qualifying where I watched him and kind of cringed a little bit. But what 19-year-old, you know, ball-playing midfielder isn't going to have defensive lapses, right? Because he's kind of been True. trained, I guess, to, to be one type of player. But I think, you know, Herdman just wants him to be a little bit more of a complete player. I think he could, you know, if he continues the form he's on with, with, with Montreal and he stays healthy, I think he has a good chance to be there. Um but you know, I, I I think the core of of who they have, I think Mark Anthony K is 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 a really good option off the bench, um, and so I, I think their midfield is is pretty close to to set right now. But I should shout out Liam Fraser. Any regular followers of mine on Twitter know that I am. I, what do the kids say? We stand for Liam Fraser. Is I that, believe that's what the children. Okay, say, thank yes. you, thank you. Well, shout <laughs> I out should to, not speak for them, but I no, think that's how it goes. Shout out to the Utes. Um, yeah, I, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Liam Fraser guy. I just, I love how well he can spray a pass. I've been a believer in him, you know, since he was, you know, an academy product with TFC. Um, I really hope he's there. Uh, what about Raheem Edwards? Do you think he has a chance to make the squad or does he also have a bit of work to do between now and that squad selection date? Uh, 
I mean, I'm grimacing. It's not because I don't rate the player. He's another player. I remember writing about him uh, when he was breaking through at TFC in 2017. Um, just a, a real electric player. But, you know, part of me just thinks that this squad is – there's there's just a lot of talent. There's a lot of talent that wasn't there a few years ago. And there's there has to be competition for spots. And I think he's probably on the outside looking in right now. And I say that – and this will probably come into play when we talk about the forwards. But I just think John Herdman values loyalty and he values the players that have been there um, – for a long time and he values the players that showed up to every single World Cup qualifying camp and didn't play. Um, Sam Piet is a name that sticks out in that regard. So I think if, you know, this is Raheem's first call up in a long time and he wasn't there through qualifying. So I, I don't know. If I had to bet, I don't bet. But if I had to, I, I would bet on him not making the squad. Are there any players who did the opposite, who sort of fell out or proved to Herdman that they couldn't be trusted or couldn't be called into the squad? I'm thinking for the U.S. of somebody like John Brooks, who it seems like there's some personal things going on. We don't quite know why he's not there, but we know he's not involved. Anybody for Canada that you expected to be involved that at this point hasn't been? No, no one sticks out. And I say that because, again, I think this is what the kids say, but the vibes were strong with this mm-hmm. men's national team. Like it, 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 it was kind of a, a, a cli- it became a cliche, this idea of this team being a brotherhood. Like they, Herdman and some of the players talked about that, this, this word brotherhood in, in kind of the beginning of qualifying. And I remember, you know, a lot of us in the media were like, Oh, that's, that's, that's really nice and optimistic. And then it just, you know, if, if you were playing over under on how many times the team would talk about brotherhood in press conferences, you always took the over. Um, but the point is, is I think what Herdman deserves credit for is getting players to put aside ego and put aside, um, you know, personal issues with the team just in the, in the pursuit of getting to the World Cup, which they did. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, 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 it's a good question, but no names really. Um, stick out Scott Arfield retiring from national team duty um, midway through qualifying uh, was a surprise, I think. Um, and I think if he hadn't been in the squad, you probably could have asked why. But him retiring, I think, answered a lot of those questions. And then when we look at the attack, there's a few names people might have heard of, uh, like already in this show. Alfonso Davies, Kyle Lahren, Jonathan David are all locks. Uh, who else do you expect to be in contention if we do have that 26-man expanded roster? Yeah, I think Junior Hoylet will be there, um, partly because I, I do – I envision him and he has at points played kind of a, as a bit of a second striker, as, a, as an attacking midfielder just behind the forwards – you know, he can play on the left side, but the left side is, is Alfonso Davies, you know, bread and butter, but he can play kind of in the middle of the park. I think EK Ubo ends up being there as well in part just because of, you know, he's proven he can score in, in, in France. And I think that will go a long way, uh, in Herdman's books and, and controversial, I think, but he's also having a really great season right now. Lucas Cavallini, I think will be there. Um, I don't know if he plays at all, but my understanding is contrary to what I think a lot of people might think of him, at least if you're judging what he's like with the media, he's a really well-liked person within the team. He's a guy that keeps the vibe up. He's a guy that, again, 
probably wishes he, well, definitely wishes he could be playing more. Maybe thinks he should be playing more, but again, Herdman values guys that bring that positivity and just, you know, challenge other players in training. So I think he'll be there. Um, you mentioned Tejon Buchanan. He's, he's a lock. I see. It's interesting. I get in, this is, um, I don't do, I don't hang out in the hot takery very often, but I see Tejon Buchanan as a little bit more of a, like a super sub. Like a guy that you can bring on, even though he's so good and he's one of this, this team's best players. But given his pace, given how dynamic he is on the ball, like I, I just wonder if like, is he a guy that you bring on in 55, 60 minutes and it just completely changes a game, right? If you're in need of a goal and the opposition is getting a bit leggy, is he a guy that you can bring on and just blow things wide open? Um, that's, I, I know that that's a bit controversial, I guess. Um, but that's kind of how I see Buchanan. Um, but I'm sure others would disagree, right? Hey, you are the expert here, so I will not disagree. Oh, I will I very that. much agree with you. Uh, I did want to ask you more about Luca uh, Koliosho, I think is how you pronounce it. 17-year-old uh, wide attacker who I think you ended up putting in your roster, but I know nothing about him. So uh, if you could bridge that gap, I would appreciate it. Yeah, this was a choice that like I went back and forth on and, and I plan on doing a number of these squad predictions. So I think, you know, if, if, if I do another one in a month, maybe he's on there, maybe he's not. He's 17 and he hasn't even committed to play for Canada. But the, 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 the carrot that John Herdman can dangle in front of players who are humming and hawing about playing for Canada now is we're going to a World Cup. And you could be there, right? And I'm not saying that's that's exactly the way things are going to play out, but he's a player that um, was born in the, in the United States. He was born to an Italian-Canadian mother. So he's eligible to play, obviously, both for the United States and Canada. Uh, he played for some um, American youth national teams, but at the age of 11, Luca goes to to Spain on his own um, to to play in um, an academy for Royce. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, a club that has since disbanded, and eventually, a few years later, he gets picked up by Espanyol and plays in their academy. And again, at the age of 17, he signs his first professional deal. And on the final day of the La Liga season, he makes his La Liga debut right at the end of of the game. So, you know, great for any 17-year-old to make their La Liga debut, you know, especially, you know, for for a North American player, um really incredibly pacey attacking left winger who can just loves getting towards goal. And it's interesting again, like Canada has a wealth of attacking talent particularly on the left side, but you know, suppose one argument is you just bring as many good players as possible and you figure it out. But I think Luca is a player that I think Canada soccer has an eye towards 2026 with. Um, but, it, you know, as a player, again, that's been training in Spain for seven years now and he's only 17. So I think they see, you know, his ceiling is much, much higher than what it is now. But again, he, he's in the Nations League right now. We don't know... Um, you know, if he will commit to Canada, he could still commit to the United States. But getting him in their senior camp before the United States gets him in, I, I think is considered a, a win for, for John Herdman, at least right now. Final question for you. Uh, 
not trying to borrow trouble, I'll knock on wood, but is there one player, if there were one player who you think is like, you basically cannot do without that is going to be the most important player for Canada at the World Cup, who is that player? Who do they need to stay healthy at all costs? I would have assumed your answer would be Afonso Davies, but then he was injured for qualifying and they still did okay without him. So maybe that's not the answer, though I suspect it well could be. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have really pumped Stefan Estakio's tires. Um, and to me, he he's a guy, it's it's a great question. He's a guy that on the pitch, I think they, they need to be good all the time. Um, you know, Alfonso Davies, there were a few games in qualifying when he, particularly when he was in his hometown of Edmonton, where he wasn't at his best, right? I think everybody ex- expected him to kind of win those games on his own and he didn't. Now he can, right? He won a really crucial game uh, at home against Panama on his own. You need Alfonso Davies to be at his best to have any chance at all of winning a game, right? I, and I hope that makes sense, right? You need Stefan Estacchio to be at his best to just stay in games. But if Canada wants to, you know, and we're talking about them winning a game at the World mm. Cup, like, but if they need him to have a game-breaking moment. And they also need him to just – and it's a lot to ask. He's still young, but they need him to, you know, shoulder the responsibility of being the face for the team, right, to the, the added media pressure, the added media expectation, just being the guy. If he can be the guy but also have those game-breaking moments that he's capable of, yeah, I mean, Canada has to feel really good about getting their first ever World Cup win. That feels like a good point to end on for today. Josh Cloak, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, I look forward to having you back on the show as we get closer to that World Cup and that first win for Canada. Uh, But for now, uh, please, one more time, if you could, uh, let our listeners know about your book and anything else you've got going on. Uh, well, hope to have a story out on Luca um, Coleosho quite soon. But yeah, the book, again, it's called The Voyageurs. Um, you can find it uh, at my Twitter handle. There's a pre-order link there right away. Um, but I suppose if, if, if you're interested, which I hope you are, you can search out The Voyageurs at wherever you buy your books online. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I genuinely love talking about the men's national team because I don't think uh, – you know, I, I, I would have, or a lot of us Canadian soccer media members would have had the opportunity to do that for the past few years with a bigger platform. So, yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for another arrival that will eventually keep us out of the World Cup on a consistent basis. <laughs> hooray! Hooray for Canada. Hooray for Mexico. Hooray for the USA. I'm excited for that World Cup in 2026. But for now, uh, I'm excited to say thanks so much to our listeners for listening. Thank you again to Josh for being here. We will talk to you all very soon. Bye.